welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Ralph Ruckus, welcome to Victor's Children. Could you introduce yourself to listeners? Yes, hi. My name is Ralph Ruckus. I've been involved in independent research on and support of social organizing and social struggles in uh, Europe, North America, and East Asia for a long time. And during the past roughly 20 years, one of my main focus was on struggles of workers, migrants, and women in China. And PM Press recently published your book, The Communist Road to Capitalism, which looks at China since the revolution of 1949, a book that I certainly recommend. Could you just tell us a little bit more about your history of study and action related to China in particular? Yeah, maybe let's start at the very beginning, right? Uh, back in the early 2000s, it became clear that China had become not only a global center of manufacturing, but also that workers in China were organizing protests on a large scale. And at the time, very little was known in left-wing circles, including my own network in Europe, about how these protests were organized, who was involved, or whether left-wing groups in China supported them. So that's when I actually started uh, getting involved, getting interested. I started learning Chinese, went over there many times, got in contact with workers, migrants, activists, feminists, in China, and then also activists and researchers, researchers from other countries were also interested in what went on in China. So the, the book project is actually something that grew out of that. Um, at, at the beginning, I was mostly translating texts, Chinese texts of, of workers, migrants, activists into English and German, uh, with, you know, probably obviously with others, uh, with the help of others. And then we started a website um, called gongchao.org where we began publishing and promoting these articles and books and uh, our own articles as well. Um, and also we started like, using that material to co-organize events and discussions in Europe and other continents on these events in China. So, you know, these all these like discussions, um, the translations, the, all the literature, I went through and and obviously a lot of the interviews and the context I had and the exchanges uh, went into this new book, which is um, a historical account. So um, rather than just focusing on what's going on now or in recent years, um, I, I went back to, to the beginning uh, of the People's Republic of China, the PRC in 1949 and went then went through all the different phases of uh, struggles, social struggles from below, and then countermeasures um, from the side of the CCP regime. And in my analysis, actually, this, this dynamic of struggles and countermeasures actually pushed um, the development of China, which started off as a socialist system, but then 
eventually in the 90s um, change into a capitalist system. Now, uh, I would have some quibbles with some of the, the characterization of China under Mao, but I think to focus on the on the present, uh, it would be good to um, you know bring up the, the starting point that for people on the left in certainly the Canadian state and in the US, really many people do not know very much about China uh, more than what they get from the mainstream media. And so there they hear, for example, that China is a rising competitor that, uh, in the case of Canada, arrests Canadian citizens for political reasons, steals intellectual property, cheats on trade deals, bullies other countries, and threatens democracy. Uh, and of course, it's not surprising that this is what people hear about China in this context, because there is growing competition between the US, which I would say is still at the top of global capitalism's imperialist order, and with which Canada is allied, and on the other hand, China, which is I would suggest a, a rising imperialist state. So if you're thinking about what um, are the most important things for radicals to understand about Chinese society today, what would you say? Uh, could you offer some thoughts about that? I think, I think the most important thing is uh, first to choose our main perspective on these developments. Do we see China just as one country or, or a nation? Or nation state, or and that is what I propose. Do we see China as a class society, a, a patriarchal society, and one where some people get together and fight for improvements, for better conditions for women, for instance, or even for a classless society? This is how, in my view, we should look at other countries um, too, not just uh, China, but also countries in um, other continents. And if we look closely. Using that perspective on social relations with China, it becomes obvious that the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, has in fact established capitalist relations and promotes the exploitation of workers. It has established or re-established the patriarchal order and promotes sexist policies. It has established neo-colonialist regimes in regions with uh, you know, large so-called so uh, ethnic minorities. And it has established an authoritarian state structure and suppresses uh, movements from below, for instance, labor unrest or workers, self-organizations, uh, women and feminist organizing and struggle and left-wing oppositional organizing and activity. So when we look at that, it becomes clear what, what character this, this new, uh, this regime today has, a regime that has transformed obviously in the last um, 70 years since the PRC was founded, but um, I would say roughly in the last 30 years, it has had this character. Now, those aspects you mentioned, like economic competition, theft of intellectual property, cheating on trade deals, bullying of other countries, all that is, is, you know, is part of what other capitalist countries do or try to do when they have the power as well. So that's not very not specific to China, although obviously, China is the second largest economy and on the rise, maybe becoming the, the biggest one at one point um, has a, has a, spe a special place in, in, in the, in the global, on the global level. So we should discuss those aspects you mentioned as well, but as part of a critique of capitalism and imperialism in general in China and in other countries. Thank you. Yeah, could you say a little bit more about capitalism in China today, the 
the particular shape that it takes um, that's allowed the level of capitalist development that you've just referred to? Well, first of all, like, you know, the, the Western capital is obviously uh, very much involved. So the rise of China in the mostly in the 90s and the 2000s to what, what's called the factory of the world or the, the you know, switch of the world, if you want, um, that, was, that was built up with the help of foreign capital, including U.S. American capital, European capital, Japanese capital, etc. So, so it's not really that we, you know, have two completely sep uh, separate economies, um, but but uh, Western capital is, is 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 involved. What what's special about China is that the state or state entities, state players play a major role in. Um, in you know, in all aspects of, of the economy, including in running companies or larger corporations, um, and the state sector is, is very strong, especially in like strategic parts like banking. Um, and that you know that that that's a specific point, but that doesn't mean you know that that China is still like socialist or or that the the way these state corporations are run. Are, are very different from how private companies, capitalist companies are run. On the ground, like, you know, looking at it from below for Chinese um, people like workers, you know, their, their daily life looks, doesn't look very different from the lives of people in, in other capitalist countries. Um, you know, they have to sell their labor power. They, they suffer from long working hours, low wages. They basically have to fight every day um, you know, for improvements, um, fight with with managers. So, so all these social relations are very similar um, to capitalism in in other in other countries. Thanks. Uh, could you say a little bit more about the state-owned enterprises? Um, then, you know, what it's like to actually work in them. You know, compared to other firms and uh, the role that they play within Chinese capitalism. Well, first of all, right, the, the, the Chinese economy was largely uh, state-owned and only in the, uh, through the reforms in the, in the 80s and especially in the 90s, uh, a lot of, a large parts of the economy were restructured, uh, partly privatized. But the state kept like strategic sectors, um, as I said, in, in, in uh, banking, communications, um, and you know, in other sectors. So, um, but you, you, still, these companies were transformed into like profit centers, right? Capitalist profit centers. So it's not that they are run in a very different way. You can compare it with like state-owned companies in other capitalist uh, countries, where like you know, like for instance, the train railway companies or telecommunications companies might still be owned by the state, but that doesn't mean that they are run very differently. And for the workers in these in these state-owned companies, it depends on the sector, it depends on the region. Um, China is, is very big, and the conditions are very different in different parts of the country. But in general, um, especially when we're talking about migrant workers, like sort of the new working class employed in these state-owned uh, enterprises, they, they con the conditions are not that different from the conditions in private companies. Um, and only, only for like urban sort of uh, employees, white color workers, um, and and maybe skilled workers, uh, the conditions are slightly better. In, um, 
but but you know there's not a large like like huge difference uh, especially when you compare to big companies uh, big private companies can you talk a little bit about the the so-called welfare state you know social rights um as they currently exist and maybe the household registration system again right there was a big change in the 90s because before um you know the, what, the welfare, you know, sort of education, um, uh, childcare, uh, healthcare, etc. For the urban workers, was organized through the the state-run uh, companies, the so-called Dunway. That was only like sort of a you know a smaller part of the Chinese population. Large part still lived on the countryside, where the communes were responsible for for these kind of stuff. But the but the level of of welfare was far lower. Big uh, huge gap. So with the reforms, um, China had to develop a new sort of welfare system. Um, but first of all, basically most of what, you know, what, we, what we call welfare was marketized. So even today, uh, you know, healthcare is very expensive. Um, the welfare system or insurance system that exists doesn't cover much. Um, you know, people in the countryside don't get really good welfare. It's still the same, you know, if you have a serious uh, disease, it might ruin your family. So um, education um, depends, um, you know, like sort of um, elementary schools, um, secondary schools are usually free, um, but still there's, you know, huge difference in quality between different areas, countryside and urban areas. And then prestigious universities, there are different systems, how to get in there, like like through exams, but, but again, education is very expensive. Um, same with housing, et cetera. So, so the welfare state does cover a little of that. And the state, you know, announces to, you know, improve the conditions. But in fact, it, it doesn't protect uh, people um, very well. But we must also say, right, like, or mention that China in general is like sort of the average income is much lower still as in sort of capitalist core countries like the US, Canada, or, or Western European countries, um, there's a huge incoming inequality. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the problem with welfare is mostly a problem of the large majority of, of people who are still fairly poor. You mentioned the, the household registration system. So in Chinese hukou, um, that's, that's a, it was for a long time a, a major institution um, that separated the society it was actually introduced uh, or reintroduced, let's say, during the socialist era in the late 50s. And it meant that, you know, any, any person in China had a, a household registration either in rural areas like villages or in urban areas. And then there were like different tiers, like, you know, large cities and smaller cities, etc. Um, and the urban population was, you know, was, was small. It was um, even in 78, when the reform started, it was still just around 20% and 80% were living on the countryside, uh, you know, under worse conditions, as I said earlier. So when the reform started, then, of course, you know, the Chinese regime needed to change the system because they needed labor power, rural labor power uh, in the new industries, um, you know, the special economic zones that were built together with Western capital in construction and urban services. So they allowed workers 
rural workers or, or former peasants and their children to migrate uh, to the cities, but they kept that system, right? They, so the, the, the rural migrants didn't become urbanites with an urban hukou, they kept their rural hukou. So they kind of, you know, were in a situation as, you know, like foreign workers are often in, in, in capitalist countries where as long as they have a job, they can stay, but when they lose their job, they would have to go back to their village. That was the plan and that actually played out for a long time. Um, and, uh, and many migrant struggles, migrant worker struggles also kind of, you know, were around these, these issues connected to that. Um, they couldn't bring their family, they couldn't use um, urban services, et cetera. Um, you know, many people have compared it to our apartheid system, actually. The Hukou is not as important anymore today, like many smaller cities or even medium cities, have, you know, not don't use it anymore, really. Uh, partly that's also because of labor shortages, so they need more workers and they need to sort of improve the, the status of migrants uh, to keep them. Only in the large cities like, like Beijing uh, or Shanghai, um, the, the Hukou is still sort of uh, used um, as, as these cities also want to control and limit migration. So thank you. To shift a little bit, uh, could you talk about the state of gender relations um, and gen more generally heteropatriarchy in China today? Yeah, again, you know, let, let me start with, you know, earlier, because the, the development, I think, is, is crucial. You know, China, you know, you might call it social, I call it socialist, actually existing socialism. During those times, the, the women were like legally equal, right? Like, like there was gender equality in, in, in the books and in the, in the law. Um, but, but it was never really sort of completely realized. Uh, like women, uh, you know, could work before, before the PRC was founded for, you know, women were, was hard to work uh, outside the house. So women could work um, and, you know, could divorce, et cetera, et cetera. But, but a lot of like factors um, played a role in like that, that, you know, I call it Maoist patriarchy, that sort of new restructured, new configured patriarchal system was established. So when the reform started, um, gender relations also changed in, in, in some ways. Uh, one, one thing was, one important development was that many migrants, rural migrants, were women who worked in the new like factories, like world market factories. So many women could actually escape the rural patriarchal structure, but then they found themselves in a new patriarchal structure of like sort of gender division of labor and exploitation in, in these companies. So that's, that's, that's important. On the other hand, like uh, urban women, um, you know, still, you know, suffer from, as, as rural women suffer from um, sort of, you know, Confucian ideas, patriarchal ideas, sexist ideas of gender differences, you know, where, where men uh, are more important than women, daughters are more important, uh, sons are more important than daughters, et cetera, um, which, which shows up in, in uh, the, the effects of the one-child policy because a lot, a lot of families, um, you know, had an abortion when, when they found out that their not yet born baby would be a girl. So today you have like millions of, of more men, which, which uh, again, uh, creates a, a crisis uh, today. Um, so that was um, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that that um, you know the the conception, the Communist Party's conception of family values, 
um, it's very um, conservative, or you you know we we would even say reactionary, um, because they um, you know still see the woman as sort of taking the care of the children and doing the housework, besides doing a job, while while uh, you know men are considered to be the uh, the bread main breadwinners. Um, and that shows up in a lot of like like policies, um, especially today, where um, the one-child policy has led to this um, sort of stagnation of population growth. But the economic system will not, you know, develop further. That China's rise, economic rise, um, will 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 not go go on if if there's a, a shortage of, of labor. And that means they need more babies. So they changed the one-child policy, which was very you know, rigid in, in some ways, especially uh, concerning urban women. Um, and now they kind of promote more children um, when you know, sort of treating women more like sort of as birth machines again. Uh, women should have babies for the nation, for the, uh, for the rise of China. And this, this, guy, this is actually put into, into policies and the rhetoric party rhetoric and against that um, you have a new wave of, of feminism uh, feminist struggles um, not necessarily like sort of outspoken um, you know like so where women say we are feminists and we fight this but like sort of a lot of it is also just behavior against this this um, discrimination and oppression and also violence against women in the last few years um, also, with you know the impact of of the Me Too campaign and other uh, other debates that that of, of obviously also Chinese women engage in, you you have a wave of of, kind of what what I call like sort of um, social kind of feminism against uh, also the the party um, uh, sexist party strategies, um, and this shows up you know like so online and in, in exchanges. It shows up in women. Um, you know, sort of trying to use the the law to fight for their rights, but it also shows up in, in more and more women um, and, and not having any children anymore, um, and demanding the right to decide um, whether they have a child and and how many. You could even call that a birth strike um, if you want. Mm, thank you. Um, any comments about this condition of uh, transgender um, and queer politics? Yeah, uh, a few years ago, I had a, I had a meeting in, in South China uh, with, uh, you know, with with uh, queer activists, uh, LGBT uh, activists um, in from China and um, and then from from the US, and and uh, the Chinese uh, pointed out well. You know, um, a lot of things here are really hard for us, but we don't have a Christian right um, that, you know, they're sort of attacking us on on, on, on the base of religion. Um, that, that is less about 10 years ago. Since then, actually, um, things have changed. Um, I think there was more sort of um, possibility uh, for, for debate and, and expression of, of uh, LGBT issues. At that time, um, recently, also with a with a campaign against feminism, feminist activism, um, there has been more repression. And the fact is that that you know, of course, one aspect is this conservative, Confucian patriarchal ideology the party is is promoting. But the other aspect is that 
any form of sort of grassroots organizing um, is seen as a, as a potential threat by the regime. Um, so a lot of in, initiatives, um, you know, like women's groups, LGBT groups, that could kind of operate, you know, sort of semi-public or, or you know, at least not not hiding themselves. They they have a lot more problems uh, today. Uh, and one sign of uh, is, for instance, that um, like social media accounts promoting LGBT rights and also feminist rights have been, you know, um, fallen victim to to government censorship uh, in in recent uh, years. Now, I want to have a question which rarely gets asked, I think, asked about here, and that's about racism um, within China, because some would argue, well, there's no racism, but uh, I think reality is different. So could you talk a little bit about what we might call the social relations race? Yeah, the, you know, the term the term race, you know, in the, in the North American debate, debate, that has a different sound rate, right? And, and um, then even in Europe, or in other places, and in China, it's 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 um, it's not it's diff- it's a little difficult to use it in in a, in a similar way. But I would I would personally would say there's a lot of racism uh, in in China, um, and have, you know it is directed against uh, currently, for instance, against uh, Uyghur, like the Muslim um, um, people in in, uh, in Xinjiang province, um, in you know in Tibet. Um, where, where Han, the you know, sort of the, the official sort of you know um, Chinese um, ethnic group, the majority group of officially like more than ninety percent of the population, is seen as superior. The Han culture is seen as superior. Um, so there, you know, there's there's a very sort of racist like um, discourse, which also the the CCP leadership or part of the CCP leadership is, is involved in. Um, but there's also, you know, another form of racism, which is directed against what I described earlier, the rural migrants. So Han is basically like sort of an abstraction because uh, when you look at like people from different provinces, they often speak like different dialects or even like different languages. I mean, the, the script, the, the writing is, is the same, uh, but the way that people speak uh, is very different and they don't understand each other unless they speak sort of the so-called Pudrua, the, the common language that that uh, you know you hear, you learn in university or you hear in, in the media. Um, so there are a lot of differences in 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 terms of language, in terms of culture, food, etc. Uh, between and, and there are also sort of racisms um, used by sort of the dominant ethnic group in a certain region, let's say Shanghai, against uh, immigrants uh, who go there to work. Um, let's say uh, you know in the as my, what migrants do, right? The shitty, dangerous, dirty jobs um, in, in in factories, construction, and households. So you know, there's a racism that that um, discriminates uh, these these people um, from from other provinces, and then you know, there are different forms of that in, in different parts of China. Thanks, and I think running through your answers to some of those questions have uh, been some ideas about how the one-party state rules, because uh, you've referred to, for example, the crackdown on independent organizing um, by oppressed groups in various ways. Uh, but this is also, I think, really important to understand in relation to how the state rules the working class as a whole and the, the crackdown that's happened on 
on workers organizing of different kinds. So could you say something? I realize these are huge questions and we could spend a lot of time on each of them, but um, just something about the, the way that this state rules. Again, thinking about the fact that people here, um, I think often are given a very kind of two-dimensional at best idea that it's, um, you know, when people talk about totalitarianism or so on, it doesn't actually help us understand how the state rules, what it allows to happen, what it doesn't, and so on. Well, first of all, I think that, you know, that what, what China is often presented as sort of this one-man like, dictatorship today. And that's that's just, just nonsense, right? Like, the, the it's, it's just like sort of... Uh, Sensationalizing the you know the sort of the the reign of, of Xi Jinping and the and the way he, the role he plays in in, in the system, um, but in fact you know there, there are a lot of different groups involved, um, interest groups involved in the even in the state institutions, uh, in China there are a lot of sort of dealings and and, and arguments and, and and you know decision making processes. That you know, often we don't we don't know about, uh, or we don't know the details, but we know that they're happening. Um, what's very obvious is that there's a difference between the central state and then sort of the provincial state and the local state. So, um, um, in in some ways, you know, Xi Jinping and his central government is, is quite weak when it comes to implementing policies uh, on a, on a regional or local level because the the reach of the central government to actually carry these things out is is, is not is not very strong, and and um, you see that you know when when they introduce environmental policies or social policies or whatever, that often uh, regional or or local party groups um, or, or or whatever state interest groups, you know, uh, just just don't implement those or don't implement them in the in the way they're so, supposed to implement them. Um, the other thing is that, you know, when, when I was recently asked, like, you know, so um, obviously China is not a democracy and there are no elections. <laughs> I say, well, there are a lot of elections, right? So they, China still has a it's kind of inherited system from the socialist times where, you know, they, they have a parliament, they, you know, they have, uh, you know, we have elections. You can obviously, you know, they, and they're not elections in the same way as or as elections are maybe in the U.S., Canada, or Western Europe, but but you know they do vote and there is some debate on you know who are the candidates and who um, who will run for office. Um, just that these these processes to you know work out who will run um, are you know often decided by by you know sort of interest groups um, in the party or close to the party. Um, the way that, you know, one thing that that is is often emphasized in the moment is the party and the you know how the the party, the Communist Party, again again like sort of has party cells and like enterprises and in, in you know in, in urban districts, etc. Um, and that is actually increasing. So the party um, is the you know so the main the Communist Party is the main sort of um, um, you know structure organizational structure. For you know, sort of developing, you know, the, the state career, like a, a career in, in, a, in a power structure for for those who um, want to engage in that, and um, and so uh, and the party is is a tool for implementing or for actually influencing different structures to to implement uh, central policies, party policies, and also the structure to make sure that CCP stays in power. Um, and stays in control of the society. So 
um, but it, but it's it's different in in in, the, in comparison to the social times like pre 78 1978 times when the grip on the control of the party was much tighter as it is today and that's the other thing right that the china you know is a dictatorship in that sense or authoritarian system where you know uh, if you um if you organize independently if you express opposition to to government agencies if you organize social resistance um you know you 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 might um and most likely will face state repression but at the same time it's a capitalist country so um and they cannot you know stop you know all kind of activity of uh, all activity that could potentially be uh, dangerous um so um and that you know often obviously people use that so so it's not I, I don't like the term totalitarianism anyway, because it, it just suggests that that fascism and and Soviet-style communism is is kind of the same or in the same league. But totalitarianism also would mean that you know that there's total control, and that definitely is not the case. And there are, especially when it comes to like resistance or like groups who, the activists of, but also you know sort of in cultural aspects, artists, etc. There's room. Uh, for people to engage, to to organize, it just a lot of that cannot do cannot uh, be done publicly, or you know, sort of with a group name or in any uh, official way. But there are definitely a lot of uh, holes in the system, a lot of uh, opportunities to engage in stuff, and that's why we do see and have seen a lot of social struggles and um, even uprisings, um, movements uh, in China in, in the last uh, few decades. Perhaps you could just pick up on that last point and say something about the, the situation at the moment, a bit of a snapshot, perhaps briefly, on the state of uh, struggle, both inside and outside the paid workplace. Yeah, one one big change is like, you know, that uh, since uh, Xi Jinping um, and, and his, you know, sort of his clique, uh, his group uh, came to power in, in uh, 2012-13, Things have changed, so there was more room for for strikes, for social organizing, um, for for you know sort of campaigns on social media um, by by feminist groups, by environmental groups, um, by by human rights uh, lawyers, etc. And um, but starting in 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 2015, and then increasingly in the coming years, there was a wave of repression um, and a lot, a lot tighter control threats. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people put in prison or just disappearing, uh, who have been involved in, in some kind of activism. Activism. Um, so a lot of the structures that they you know sort of developed in in the pre in the in the 10, 15 years before um, had had to had to adapt, had to you know go go underground or or disappear in some way or other. Um, and it's it's um, it's a lot more um, difficult today um, to to organize. Um, and for instance, support support social struggles. These struggles still exist, though, and and uh, and um, quite a lot of them. Um, and uh, also, they you know they, the the process of sort of people be, becoming more conscious about the power structures, the opportunities to organize, the ways to to fight for 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 your interest. You know that's that's still there. And when you talk to people in China, they're very aware of. What's going on? You know where where their chances are. 
And we do hear um, uh, and, and see, um, you know, still like strikes, for instance, uh, delivery workers. Um, we had, uh, you know, some mobilization among uh, white collar workers. Um, there's still strikes in, in construction and manufacturing. And as I said earlier, right, there's still sort of feminist activity. Um, it's just it's just more difficult for for those, you know, in the front line, those who kind of you know try to sort of connect people and 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 uh, and support these struggles to to come out uh, openly. Great. I'd like to move on and uh, talk about two. Uh, government policies, uh, things that get portrayed here. You, On the one hand, you hear uh, that the Chinese government talks about the goal of an ecological civilization as a kind of slogan uh, with reference to, to climate change. And then more recently, there's been this talk of the adoption of a policy of so-called common prosperity. So could you say some things to listeners about those two? Yeah, <laughs> today there was, there, there was a report um, that the the, uh, the government announced uh, or just decided to build new coal fire fired power plants, and that uh, also it reconsiders whether it has to adjust its promise for reaching climate neutrality um, in in two thousand sixty. Uh, so you know, so they they're debating whether you know it will be later. Um, so you know, it's just. At the same time, like a few days ago, they announced they will not not sell coal-fired power plants abroad anymore, which you know is just a promise, uh, um, and which also means they have sold them a lot in in recent years. Um, so when you know when you hear this uh, rhetoric um, on like sort of you know ecological civilization or or green um, green growth, uh, etc. Um, I think part of that is just that the, the CCP leadership um, wants to kind of greenwash uh, its capitalist development policies, um, you know, and, and sort of present them as as sort of um, as sort of you know sort of um, ecological or whatever. But on the other hand, you know, it actually has to do something. The regime has to do something about sort of immediate effects of. Environmental destruction and pollution, um, uh, for one, because the urban middle class is also affected, um, you know, by you know bad air, you know, sort of um, toxic waste and, and food, etc. And that urban middle class is sort of the main pillar of, of CCP rule. Uh, and since they suffer from from those effects, you know, there's some kind of some pressure to actually do something. And on the other hand, environmental destruction and pollution is actually Producing massive costs, and those costs will only increase in coming de decades. So, the CCP regime, in order to sort of you know um, continue with its de uh, capitalist development program, needs to do something about those costs and act um, in reducing um, environmental destruction and and um, and pollution. So, so there are these both aspects of like sort of greenwashing and. And making big promises, but on the other hand, actually having to do something about. It. I don't think that's so different, actually, from from what we see in other countries, where um, you know also it's kind of a big, become mainstream uh, because the urban middle class is so so involved and 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 uh, affected by the by the environmental um, 
threats that that uh, you know governments have moved to to do something uh, about it. Um, on the on the common prosperity, um, I, I recently wrote an article about this. This, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, Xi Jinping mentioned that term in his speech, um, and uh, you know, sort of um, saying you know they will do more uh, about you know social social inequality and improve the condition for for the poor or for for um, you know the have-nots in China. It's interesting this term um, in Chinese, Gongtong Fuyu, um, or, or common prosperity, it was actually used by the CCP already in the 1950s, um, when the leadership at that time stated that common prosperity was only possible when taking the road of socialism and collectivization, while the capitalist road would lead to poverty for many. And they said that at the, at the time because they wanted to push for uh, the collectivization um, effort in the in the mid fifties. Then in the nineteen seventies, they uh, used that term again, but then they claimed the opposite. They said common prosperity was only possible if a few get rich first, and the others follow later, and collectivism would just produce poverty. Um, so they used that term, you know, in order to justify the the economic reforms, which basically meant, um, you know, that that some people turn. Sort of capitalist um, and and you know earn a lot of money while others stay very poor, um, and so when Xi Jinping, the president, uh, talked about that uh, uh, recently, it was interesting because some Western observers started like hyperventilating uh, and and painting a picture of like communist rule and you know property would be confiscated, etc. But the CCP. Um, uh, the party reacted straight away and, and made clear um, through like sort of media reports and that it was not aiming for collectivization at all. Um, so we are not we're not faced here with like sort of a new sort of consistent new policy or grand strategy um, of you know sort of you know like whatever questioning the capitalist relations or, or anything like this. It's it's rather you know there, there's a range of measures. Um, and, and that's important because it's not really just about common prosperity and the term. There's a range of ma measures intervening and in sort of, you know, mostly private business in the internet, internet companies, also kind of disciplining the, uh, the, their bosses like, like Jack Ma of Alibaba. And then there's an announcement by the, by the regime that it will do more about the huge social inequality. But it's, it's not doing that because, it, you know, it wants to, you know, sort of, Engage in, in in major changes. It's more more just concerned about social tensions um, and destabilization of, of CCP rule. So in that sense, it just you know sort of takes what we we would call Keynesian from 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 Maine and Keynes Keynesian uh, measures to regulate um, certain you know sort of effects of, of the development model of the capitalist. Development model, and then you know, injuries, forms of welfare, taxation, certain industrial policies, and so on, to to regulate uh, the capitalist system. Um, I, I recently read that someone called it the, the Red New Deal, and um, you know, with all this debate on on New Deals, which which I think um, are very questionable forms of of you know, so just modernizing capitalist relations. But in that sense, here. 
it also fits because um, we're talking about some adjustments of industrial policies, some maybe you know, some new welfare, maybe a rise of the minimum wage, and probably you know more cosmetic adjustments of uh, government rhetoric. Um, but um, you know there will be no change in, in capitalist relations as such. Thanks. There's a lot more I'd love to ask about, but mindful of the time, I think um, I'd like to shift a little bit to think about the politics around just China on the left here and the fact that some people on the left who are quite rightly disgusted with the foreign policy of the U.S. and Canadian states and can see what Western multinational corporations do all over the world respond to the China bashing, which is, of course, rising here by politically aligning themselves with the Chinese state, and some actually defend the Chinese state as a socialist. So could you, you know, share what you're thinking about that? And also maybe take on the question that does it matter what people here say and how they align themselves? Because there are some people who might have a kind of uh, approach where they say, well, as long as, you know, we're working together and social struggles in here, that doesn't really matter what we say about we can, you know, what's going on in China, that's not really important. What would you uh, respond to that? Well, first of all, obviously, it's necessary to, to fight, you know, against that, that, you know, bashing of, of Chinese or, or Asian looking, looking people um, in, you know, in, in like Western countries uh, connected to the pandemic or other sort of um, uh, campaigns of, of, of Western governments. Um, and, um, and, you know, and it's necessary to support um, also, you know, sort of forms of self-organization and of, of resistance of, of um, Asian communities against, against these attacks, which don't only affect uh, Chinese, but also, you know, just, just people who, who, who look like, like, like they are from, from Asia. Um, and obviously it's also necessary to, to um, you know, like to, Criticize and, and protest against uh, U.S. foreign policy or, you know, Western sort of strategies, um, imperialist strategies, um, you know, in in, uh, in 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 any country, right, where where, where we are, and there's, there's no question about it. But backing the Chinese regime um, in in the you know sort of you know tensing up imperialist rivalry. Makes no stop, makes no sense if we want to stop the imperialist competition uh, as a whole and prevent a, a, an escalation uh, or, or the war even. Um, so rather, we I think we need to organize resistance against capitalism and uh, imperialist policies uh, in all in all countries, right, and in, in Western countries as well. And at the same time, support social movements and left wing tendencies in the uh, in China. Uh, you know, including Hong Kong, Taiwan, and elsewhere. Um, if we want to bring down capitalism or prevent wars, uh, we need to do it from below. I think, sort of in 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 the form of of uh, resistance movements, of of social movements, of anti-war movements, and not in the way of like supporting a state power like like the CCP regime uh, in in China, um, and hope that you know that will sort of lead to any 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 good development or or even any sort of you know revolutionary or um, um, movement or anything like this. Um, regarding the question of you know like in the socialism and capitalism, because you know obviously I, I 
I also follow these debates, and you have them in Europe. You have them in in uh, you know also in countries of the global south, um, where there are debates in the left of you know whether what what China is today, you know what what characters it have as a socialist capitalist, um, and um, I think the first question is always you know what you know when people say China is socialist, so what do do they define as socialism? Exactly. What is socialism for them? And um, and you know, and I I wait for the explanation because you know otherwise I, I don't really know how to answer that. For me, it's not socialism, but maybe it is in their understanding because they think you know authoritarian state regime, um, which which has some sort of influence on on the economy is enough or some welfare is enough to to call a country socialist. I don't agree with that because I think then a lot of countries that have never even claimed to be socialist would be called socialist. Uh, which 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 is obviously nonsense. Um, and the other thing is that if you call it socialist, so what do you think about the development since 1949? And doesn't that mean you know there was no change? And is this the same regime? Obviously, it's the same communist uh, party, but is it the same sort of society, the same economic system, the same political system as it was in the 50s and 60s? I think certainly not. And um, there was a, a substantial change. Um, in the in the 80s and 90s, especially, um, and the the CCP obviously itself, like this leadership, they claim to be socialist, right? Still, and they they cover up those changes, those uh, um, um, quite substantial changes, and they also negate and downplay, um, you know, all kind of social movements on and, and challenges, right, from below, class struggles um, in in socialist times, like. Um, you know what I call socialist times in the in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, and then later, um, they just don't talk about it or ignore that, or um, or or you know even punish people if they start talking about it um, about these events. Um, but the fact is, if you look at um, at the history um, since nineteen forty nine, there's a foundation of the of the uh, of China, uh, People's Republic. In every phase, basically, in every decade, you would even say. There were major uh, social movements from below, even political movements, with with ex explicit left wing demands, um, and that challenged the the, the party rule, um, and and that that's you know basically the main argument of, of my book. Right, um, and then so thinking about people outside China who, uh, as you put it in your book, recognize the need for, in your words strategies that deliver profound social change and empower the social forces able to accomplish this goal. Is there anything that we can do here that will help people on the left inside China who are organizing for change from below? Yeah, one thing that's very difficult to start with that um, is that, you know, direct sort of involvement or intervention, uh, you know, in China, in social struggles and left-wing organ uh, organizing, by you know the, what it, for foreigners, Uyghurren as they say in, in China, that that is very problematic um, because of the repression uh, of of all, all kind you know of these forms of social organizing or left wing organizing, and the direct sort of in, involvement or intervention of foreigners is actually making things worse, like um, for or more dangerous even for for Chinese activists. So. You know that that is that's very difficult um, at the uh, at the moment, and uh, especially for people without direct contacts or 
with little experience um, of interacting with activist workers or feminists there. One way, you know, that, that people can get involved is actually to, to support um, left-wing activists and feminists in the Chinese diaspora. Um, you know, you, you have people in Europe and in, in, uh, in other countries in Asia and in, in North America um, who, who are from China, who are involved in debates, who, you know, sometimes academic, people, some, you know, people also really sort of involved in NGOs and other organizations or self-organized and, and you can you can support them of course. Um, I think that what well, you know I, how I started and what I think is, is is crucial today is especially when we talk about this debate you just mentioned on about you know sort of ch uh, supporting the Chinese regime against American imperialism. Um, I think it is is to you know under underline and emphasize the social struggles in China by translating or just you know spreading information written by Chinese activists on the social contradictions and struggles in China and just you know spread that in your circles or you know publicize that to, to make it visible and also to make the people who write this um, or who push forward these these opinions these, uh, this analysis more visible um, and and uh, and sort of make it a part of the sort of global left-wing discussion I think this is this is a, this is a huge um, the task um, and and me and you know a lot of others around me are have been involved in this for a long time so it's not 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 easy but I think it's it's very important um, that you know we like the left which is still very much sort of you know sort of centered on on you know one 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 country or like or Eurocentric Eurocentric in the sense of a European world. Um, and uh, and it's important to you know include these um, these perspectives um, and and views and, and also political initiatives um, of of people um, in China or from China uh, in this debate. Um, I'm you know I'm, I'm I'm talking about China. Obviously, you know I could say the same about India or or, um, or Indonesia or other countries. But, but uh, well, we're talking about China today. Um, that is also, I think, if we if we do that, if we engage in this sort of making that more visible, included in the in, in the debate, then it will be more, it will be easier once um, you know there is more space again in uh, space again in China for creating contacts, for engaging in direct support there. Um, where, you know, if we have that knowledge, if we have um, the, the knowledge about these Chinese perspectives, uh, left wing perspectives. Great. And if people want to learn more about China, I certainly recommend they read your book uh, and the website gongchao.org. Uh, I'll include those references in the show notes. Uh, are there other resources you'd like to point listeners to? Well, yeah, you know, we, we just made a, a podcast series um, called China and the Left. Um, and you can go to my blog, um, nqch.org. Um, and, and you know, find all, you know all the the recordings there. You know that that's kind of different different um, views and perspectives on uh, on on social developments, but also you know Belt and Road and other issues um, in China. There's there are a couple of websites. Um, um, uh, one is at Chuang, uh, that's C H U A N G C N dot org, with very sort of left left wing perspectives and and you know sort of 
outside from China and, and, and uh, from people, you know, sort of outside China been involved uh, in debates there for a long time. Interesting analysis. Then um, if you're interested in labor stuff and labor strikes, um, I recommend, the, you know, there's an NGO called China Labor Bulletin. They have a strike map. Um, so that's interesting. And then, you know, talking about Chinese diaspora, one sort of left-wing um, network is called Lao San. Uh, so there's a, a website, lausan.hk. Um, and they are sort of writing about, um, um, you know, all, all kinds of, of issues related to, to China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Chinese diaspora uh, from a left-wing perspective. perspective. I, I, you know, in, in terms of uh, like other books, I, I, I want to point out one book actually um, that, that kind of um, also gives, gives, you know, beside my book, gives, gives us a historical perspective. Um, and that's available in English. It's written by Wu Yiching, and it's called Cultural Revolution at the Margins, and it's a historical account of the Cultural Revolution and its implications for the CCP regime, and explains a lot of, about not just the cultural, cultural revolution and sort of the revolution inside the revolution, um, but also about the, the impact that had on the, on the further development uh, in, the, in the 70s and, and after. Thanks very much for your time. Well, thank you. Before we go to the second interview for this episode of Victor's Children, I just thought I should explain my disagreement, uh, which I mentioned in passing very quickly, uh, with one point of Ralph Ruckus about the Chinese past. where he described China between the 1950s and the 1970s in in the past as being socialist. Uh, In his very good book, Ralph writes that uh, after 1949, the Chinese Communist Party leadership aimed at national liberation and independence from foreign colonial or imperialist rule and the construction of, quote, socialism in one country, unquote. Uh, In other words, that would be the kind of society that had been built in the Soviet Union under Stalin. Ralph also quotes from the historian Wu Yiching, uh, who writes that the People's Republic of China became, quote, a highly repressive garrison state in which institutions of the party, the military, and the state were closely intertwined. And I completely agree with this. Ralph just discusses how China in those years following through the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, experienced incisive modifications of the social, economic, and political texture. Again, I agree with that. And he also argues that the kind of society that existed was not a system and society under the control of workers and peasants. The original revolutionary promise of destroying the capitalist class system and all forms of repression and replacing it with one based on collectivity and equality was not achieved. Instead, a new class rule based on economic exploitation, state repression, patriarchal discrimination, and social exclusion was established. And the book also chronicles this important social struggles and radical left opposition to the, this, the, the Maoist social order. And I agree with all of that. Yet, Ruckus in his book does use the term socialism to describe that society, the same term used by the Maoist ruling class to describe the society itself. So it's just that. Uh, characterization that I disagree with. I would say that uh, the society was in the past uh, either 
based on a non-capitalist mode of production, but one where there was still class exploitation by a new ruling class of the workers and peasants, or a distinctive kind of capitalism that you can call state capitalism. So I certainly think it was not in any way in transition towards a classless and stateless society, in other words, what we could call socialism or communism. So turning now from China to the politics around China within the Canadian state, I'm happy to welcome Vincent Wong to Victor's Children. I think we first connected after the magazine Briarpatch published a really good article in the March-April 2021 issue. Uh, it was an article about China and the Canadian left. So could you just introduce yourself to listeners? Yeah, thank you, David. And uh, thank you so much for having me on your wonderful podcast, which which is such an important like educational resources. I know I've learned a lot from it. Um, and anybody on the left uh, would, would you know be really uh, behooved to, to listen to your podcast. Um, so my name is Vincent Wong. I'm a lawyer and a PhD student at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto. And uh, outside of my PhD, I, I wear different hats. Uh, I do a lot of legal support for Butterfly, which is an Asian and migrant sex worker support network. Um, and I sit on the board of an organization called the Community Justice Collective. Um, and uh, for this purposes of, of our conversation around uh, campism and, and China, um, I'm most notably uh, part of a collective called Laosan which was born from the 2019 Hong Kong pro-democracy protests and aims to use Hong Kong as a site of critique for uh, coloniality, the carceral state and, and global capitalism more broadly. And before that, I worked for around five years as a staff lawyer at the Chinese and Southeast Asian Legal Clinic, uh, which provides legal services and representation for low-income populations in, in the Chinese and Southeast Asian communities. So, um, you know, I, I, I go through that background uh, just to flag that I think all that experience, I think, has given me a very particular view and orientation towards, uh, well, the rise of the right in Canada, uh, but particularly among Chinese diaspora communities as well as what I would argue is the rise of the right in China as well, particularly under uh, Xi Jinping's administration. And a lot of those contradictions, I think, um, really motivated me to write that, that briar patch piece uh, on China and the Canadian left. Thanks so much. So here in the context we find ourselves in the mainstream media, we are told in the media that China is a rising superpower that does things like arrest Canadian citizens for political reasons, steal intellectual property, uh, cheat on trade deals, and bully other countries and generally threaten democracy. The federal liberal government has said that its approach to China will be based on what it calls four C's, coexist, compete, cooperate, challenge. For its part, the Conservative Party criticizes the liberals from the right. It accuses them of being soft on Chinese communist authoritarianism for the sake of business opportunities for Canadian firms. 
and it accuses them of not lining up with the US, the UK, and Australia against China in a supposed defense of what they call a rules-based international order in trade and diplomacy. Some conservatives have also complained that in the recent 2021 federal election, their party lost some ridings where there are large numbers of Chinese Canadians because of what they claim was Chinese state interference. And then the NDP in its 2021 platform said, and I'm going to quote here, a new Democrat government will stand up to China with a strong and coherent strategy to defend Canadian interests at home and abroad. We will work with our allies to lead a robust and coordinated international response to China's disregard of the rule of law. New Democrats will call out human rights abuses by China, stand with Hong Kong pro-democracy asylum seekers, and support co and provide coordinated support for those facing threats by Chinese entities here in Canada. And that, that criticism from the NDP was not accompanied by any kind of similar criticism about the actions of the US state at home and abroad. So looking at this big picture, what do you think about the discussion that's happening around China in the mainstream media and official politics right now in the Canadian state? Yeah, so, so that's, a, that's a very big question and, and thanks for the lay of the land. Um, I guess I'll, I'll offer a couple of general thoughts uh, and then and then if you have any any questions to you would like to delve deeper into, I'd be happy to. Um, so on media coverage, I think some of the things that you mentioned generally are, you know, are, are true. You know, China is, of course, ascendant as a global political and economic power. It has the second largest economy in the world projected to pass the, the U.S. In, in about a decade. Uh, it has the second largest military in the world, although it, it trails, trails the U.S. Uh, in that regard quite a bit. And uh, it has, you know, kind of charted its own course to greatly expand um, its role in the global capitalist order uh, with being the hub of a very, very ambitious sort of global infrastructure and trade project called uh, Belt Road Initiative. So, of course, it is also governed in a way uh, that is decidedly undemocratic and concentrates political power within a one party um, authoritarian state capitalist system. So, so certain, you know, certain things about that uh, is true. Um, but I think the vilification of China uh, in traditional Western media as somehow exceptional, right, with the respect to some of the things that it is accused of, uh, let's say, in international politics around trade and diplomacy uh, is, is, I think, frequently hypocritical, right? Um, in terms of many other great powers do similar things. Uh, the rhetorical orientation then of, okay, well, what, what's going on is, is sort of a clash of civilizations. Um, these uh, systems that cannot be reconciled or, or, or do not intertwine between China and the West is, is dangerous and, and actually like ahistoric, right? Because there's a lot of cooperation and inter-imperial sort of partnership between China and the West, uh, as, as well as many connections through the global capitalist economy. And, and this clash of civilizations narrative uh, that you, you find so frequently in, in mainstream media here strengthens nationalist forces on both sides and amplifies these anxieties, uh, but they also feed... Uh, and rely on illiteracy about uh, China's political and economic development over the years. So, so what happens is, okay, if this clash of civilizations narrative becomes normalized in mainstream media and uh, infiltrates then mainstream understandings about this, if that's the starting point for our discussions, 
then what happens is that Canadian foreign policy is um, uh, is restricted to a very narrow question of how, quote unquote, tough we should be on China without a deeper analysis of what is happening in Chinese politics, how it is different from what is happening here, but also how it is you know, quite similar to what is happening here, um, particularly in terms of a global right wing uh, economic shift. And so uh, how are we uh, interconnected? How ought our political orientation, uh, if we care about questions of human dignity and, and emancipation, uh, I think that is not really given the space to be discussed in a lot of these Canadian foreign policy uh, questions on China. So for the NDP, I think, uh, if I can zoom into that a little bit, the, the particular path to China's rise in power, I think, poses a lot of difficulties for the NDP and the leftists in Canada in general, because so much of its rise since the 1980s was due to, and, and I mean, economic growth uh, uh, was due progressively to uh, deepening capitalist reforms under an authoritarian one-party bureaucracy. Um, and this, of course, uh, means that China is still taken as de facto left wing, even though it has sort of flipped to de facto right wing, uh, but are still under the banner of the same party. So this flip in left and right political spectrum causes all sorts of confusions and, and contradictions in Canadian foreign policy. So uh, I, I can speak a little bit more about that, but I think... Um, there are a lot of things that Canada can do in terms of foreign policy uh, with respect to a particular country. And one can think of it in terms sort of a, as a spectrum of uh, a more, you could say, defensive and supportive posture uh, versus a, a more kind of aggressive, offensive and, and imperialist um, uh, posture. Right. And then so the more supportive stuff, uh, I think, supporting my forced migration and refugee uh, issues, um, uh, banning exports of uh, particular types of policing, uh, military equipment, tear gas. I think that is, is, is useful and it's, I think, rather uncontroversial. I, I, I think, you know, something somewhere in the middle might be, you know, pretty strong declarations or uh, corporate sanctions on... On, on human rights offenders, um, and that's as, as well as Magnitsky sanctions on officials, and I think that's a little more controversial. And I think what the left wants to make sure it steers away from is some of these broad economic sanctions or containment policies, uh, or, or kind of directly supporting um, uh, U.S. Uh, aggressive military posture uh, with respect to to China. So. I, I, I think there is move, you know, room to move within foreign policy options, but I think uh, leftists need to think about ensuring that it doesn't uh, amplify nationalist anxieties and tensions uh, by by going too far into an aggressive posture, while still, um, you know, being uh, understanding where uh, China is headed in terms of of its lot of its development and 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 which groups are severely oppressed because of that. Th those are my general remarks, and, and perhaps I'll leave it at that because it's a very big question. I think that's that's great. And let's move now and, and talk about 
the impact on Chinese Canadians and other people of East Asian heritage who are often assumed in a racist society to be Chinese, uh, how uh, those folks are being affected by the growing uh, vilification and criticism of China. Um, what kind of responses to that are you seeing as well within the community? Yeah, I'll start off by saying that, you know, anti-Chinese racism and anti-Asian racism has always been a foundational part of Canadian society, right? Uh, so racial subordination of Chinese uh, both comes from the top down and from the bottom up historically. So top down, I mean, uh, for instance, through immigration restrictions like the, the 1885 Chinese Immigration Act and, and, and just recognizing, for example, that the first racial bans in Canadian immigration were targeted uh, against Chinese women who were, who were deemed to be prostitutes, right? And were deemed to be specifically immoral as compared to, uh, let's say, a white sex worker. But, but this uh, exclusion and racism has also come very directly from white labor, right? Uh, the idea that Chinese workers are naturally inclined uh, for toil, right? And because of that, whites could not compete racially. Uh, and then therefore Chinese and later all, uh, you know, quote unquote, Asiatics were banned from labor union, unions at the turn of the century. So uh, this racism also frequently follows tropes that sees Chinese bodies and Asian bodies as vectors of illness, uh, disease, and, and filth, you know, the, the kind of dirty uh, Chinatown sort of trope. And so when COVID hit uh, in uh, really, really early, I guess, uh, 2020 here in Canada, uh, latent anti-Chinese racism really exploded. Uh, and of course, uh, it affected also those who were, you could say, Chinese passive, right? And much of the common discourse deliberately or at least was negligent in conflating, uh, one, the Chinese government, right? Uh, two Chinese people everywhere playing upon the idea of, you know, Chinese conspiracy with respect to the virus. So uh, the, the entire lab leak theory or, you know, playing up virus tropes that framed Chinese bodies as dangerous and disease ridden, uh, like Kung flu, uh, those ideas, as well as um, with the China angle, particularly potential traitors to the country, right? All everybody could potentially be a communist party spy, right? And all of these things resulted, I think, together in the massive spike of anti-Asian racist attacks that you saw. So uh, uh, I, I worked um, on the board of the Chinese Canadian National Council Toronto chapter uh, when we were collecting information in 2020. And, and in that year, uh, we and, and other community partners, we documented I think 1,150 cases of racist attacks. And these are all self-reported. So this is the tip of the iceberg uh, across Canada, uh, which was many, many fold uh, the normal number of, I mean, you could say normal, but like the, the average that you would normally see uh, in a year. But now I want to turn to this thornier question then of like, okay, what is this connection between anti-Chinese racism, right, in the West and growing criticism of the increasingly sort of aggressive and jingoistic actions of Xi Jinping's government in China. So I think the rhetorical move that makes this possible is to convert the critique of the Chinese state uh, and the vilification of China into anti-Chinese racism against individuals and community. 
And this requires a certain belief that the interests of the Chinese government and more specifically of the Communist Party of China and the interests of Chinese people are everywhere one and the same and indivisible. And of course, the Communist Party uh, really tries to push this notion. This notion is, of course, completely untrue and dangerous, right? One only needs to look at the tenuous and frequently weaponized link between, for example, anti-Semitism and the actions of the state of Israel to see the damage that normalizing this link can do. Uh, Chinese communities here in Canada, of course, are highly uh, heterogeneous. Uh, they have similarly diverse views about Xi Jinping's government and about the CPC in general. And so if you were to ask me whether the villainization of China has contributed to anti-Chinese racism, I would, of course, uh, say yes, and I agree. Uh, but I believe that the way to address this is to unsettle the idea that the actions of any ethno-nationalist state ought to be reflective of the actions of the, the ethnicity as a whole, which is really the proximate cause of, of this increase in racism. Um, and it's just uh, this idea, and I, I talk about this in Briarpatch as well, um, of, of one nation, one people, uh, simultaneously allows the Communist Party of China to strengthen its monopoly that it claims over China as a nation and the voices of Chinese people around the world. And it, it reinforces that stereotype that Chinese people are also increasingly uh, and overwhelmingly pro-authoritarian, which is not necessarily true. And it def deliberately kind of conflates uh, legitimate critiques of Chinese state policy with uh, Sinophobia, which again, I think if you look at the, the uh, Israel example, gives you a pretty clear idea of, of how uh, deliberately obscuring that uh, particular line of reasoning can can go. Thanks. Let's uh, look in particular then at the, the radical left, by which I mean, in the, in the broadest sense, people who are at least fundamentally opposed to neoliberalism, as well as people who go, I would say, further in being anti-capitalist. Because on the, uh, on the radical left, there are strong political disagreements about China. And my impression is that among people who have a definite opinion, there's been some increase in the number of people who are now politically supporting the Chinese state and who believe that that's the only position that one can hold, which would be consistent with opposing Canadian and U.S. imperialism. And some of these people also accept the line uh, that China is a social society. For example, that's the view of the Communist Party of Canada. Uh, we can call this campus politics. This was the focus of the September 2021 episode of Victor's Children. But would you like to comment a little bit about this, this outlook in terms of political support for the Chinese state? Yeah, sure. Uh, and I guess I'll start with um, saying that uh, on one hand, I am quite sympathetic of how some radical leftists could get there in this thinking, uh, all, while I hold the idea that it is extremely um, uh, it's extremely like uh, the leaderist in terms of international leftist solidarity. And I think your previous episodes, uh, especially on Stalinism and campism, really set the stage for understanding what is going on today with the radical left and, and China, or at least the radical Western left in China. And uh, as mentioned earlier, China has been undergoing progressively deepening uh, first transitional market reforms uh, since the 1980s and then deepening sort of capitalist reforms, right? 
in the creating of special economic zones for foreign investment and free trade, uh, which eventually bled into policy for the rest of the country, uh, entering the World Trade Organization, of course, in 2001, uh, demolishing state employment and entitlements uh, during that time, and really uh, eviscerating the social security net uh, that was very strong before curbing labor rights and banning labor unions, uh, and, and really the facilitation of the privatization of enormous parts of, of the economy. And, and while this has helped spur economic growth in a, in a very sort of uneven way, the forces that have been unleashed by these decades of Chinese state capitalism, uh, the growing inequality, the creation of this massive proletarianized migrant workforce, uh, I mean migrant as an in, uh, internal um, migrant workforce in China, uh, has led to the rise of, of really, um, and this is not surprising if you've, you've been looking at the rest of the world, uh, this sort of ethnic scapegoating uh, through Han Chinese resentment and an increasingly muscular and unapologetic Han nationalism, right? And these forces found a strongman leader in Xi Jinping who has really facilitated their desires. Uh, Xi, of course, canceled term limits for president in the constitution uh, so he can serve forever, right? Um, uh, made an enormous kind of crackdown on Chinese civil society and human rights groups in 2005 and, and really extended this new strengthened jingoistic Han nationalism to its peripheries. And, and that's really where the, the story of the increase of campism starts, right? Uh, you have these two things that are going on, these seismic developments at the peripheries of China, one in the Northwest and one in the Southeast, right? The Northwest is this acceleration of the Han settler colonial project that has been going on for many decades in the Northwest frontier of Xinjiang at the expense of, of Uyghur and other non-Han indigenous populations. And then in the Southeast, you have this brutal crackdown on a massive uh, pro-democratic and anti-police uh, protest movement in, in Hong Kong. These seismic developments, both uh, in Xinjiang and in Hong Kong, were then opportunistically seized upon by, I think, uh, Western right-wing and centrist politicians to further the interests and normalize their own imperialist agendas, right? So the radical left, I think, has seen China only pop up now uh, in this context without, uh, I think, fully understanding the history that I, I very, very quickly um, uh, went over. And if you take a look at that, then I think uh, there was a major missed opportunity for the radical left because we need the radical left's analysis to critique global capitalism, uh, policing, the prison industrial complex, Islamophobia, the war on terror, and uh, this reactionary sort of racist nationalism, all of which was going on uh, in China, right? Uh, by either ignoring what was going on or or in the case of, you know, I guess you could say the hardline campists, uh, supporting the Chinese government actions through, uh, through this campus analysis and propping up an imaginary of China as actually existing socialism that could provide uh, a bulwark to US and Canadian uh, imperialism that was, that was, you know, I guess you could say progressive. Um, and 
the Communist Party of Canada and their line, I think, has has not been immune, of course, to this campus reaction. And, and I think revisiting the, uh, the legacy of Stalinism and its campaigns to convince communist parties around the world that it has to, above all, support the USSR, even if it subordinates class struggle, is really helpful in understanding some of the dynamics that you see today. Um, and, and yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll uh, leave it there. Thanks. And I think uh, when we look at the left in, in general, um, many people see only two possibilities. Either you more or less line up with the kind of criticism of China that uh, comes from the ruling class here, which is what the NDP does more or less, or you more or less align with the Chinese state. And for me, I mean, this reminds me a lot of what the most of the left was like when I became a socialist at the end of the 1980s. At that time, the question was, were you with Canada, the US, and so on in, in NATO, the so-called free world, or you did you take the side of the USSR and its allies, the so-called communist world? But back then, there were socialists who said neither Washington nor Moscow, and to use another slogan, the communist world, quote-unquote, communist world is not communist, and the free world is not free. And those were ideas that persuaded me. And today, there are, of course, socialists who recognize that China, like the rest of the world, is capitalist. Um, and who support social struggles everywhere, including within China, and who oppose the domination of the world by the rival imperialist powers, not just the U.S. at the top of the global hierarchy of states and its Canadian ally, but also China and, although it's much weaker than China, Russia too. So I think we probably agree then that neither Washington nor Ottawa nor Beijing is a good slogan. Um, how can we best promote this kind of internationalist politics on the left? Yeah, uh, and I, I'm glad you brought up this analogy or or bringing up the echoes of the 1980s because uh, that is exactly what uh, leftist China scholar David Brophy, um, uh, who does great work, uh, he mentioned before about the echoes of our current situation, where uh, in the Cold War, um, the U.S. sort of had this monopoly on uh, very broadly this freedom idea. And the USSR had this monopoly on very broadly this, this peace idea, right? Or the no uh, Cold War uh, sort, sort of orientation. And in a certain sense, um, uh, as, as over obviously reductionist as, as that is, uh, we are in a much more cynical place now with respect to this, to the same idea coming up. Um, as, as China is quite obviously and outwardly capitalist as compared to, say, the USSR uh, in the later stages of, of the Cold War. And I generally agree, uh, you know, with the slogan of neither Washington nor Ottawa or Beijing, but I think that that doesn't, you know, tell us enough about how we should orient, which is first and foremost, I think, as leftists standing with the oppressed as praxis, and then using solidarity and those discussions out of solidarity as a way to continually sharpen our analysis of the multivariate causes of, of oppression in the world. Uh, the kinds of criticisms of China, as, as you say it, um, that matters a lot, right? So how do you critique China? Where is it coming from? What Are you critiquing it on the, the things that the, the West you know, does frequently, and in particular the U.S.? Uh, I, that makes a huge difference. But if you critique it from uh, a leftist sort of politics, uh, I would argue that new opportunities pop up 
that are outside the binaries of the position that you were talking about, either you more or less, uh, as you said, uh, align with the kind of criticism that that China uh, of China from from the U.S. and Canadian ruling classes. So new opportunities pop up to get outside of that binary and class struggle is always going to be central to that analysis, but also decolonization, gender justice, anti-racism, anti-ableism, environmental justice. Uh, so, so I think the, the key is, you know, to recommit ourselves to this uh, idea of a socialism from below that draws lessons from history, that draws lessons from the Cold War, but is firmly uh, attuned to the present. And, and I think a lot of this with respect to China is, again, trying to abandon the relics of Cold War binary mentality that continues to really um, infect many Western, uh, you could say, international relations or, or really other schools of thought uh, around internationalism and start building bridges in this case with uh, very suppressed groups in China, right? Migrant workers, labor activists, anti-carceral activists, feminists, uh, internally colonized communities like Tibetan and Uyghur uh, diaspora. Uh, in, in certain cases, this is harder to do, right? Because um, the space for civil society, for labor organizing has so uh, been reduced by Xi Jinping's crackdowns but um, the opportunities will always be there and they will all, never be completely shut. And the other thing is the Chinese state will only continue to grow in prominence uh, in the near future as U.S. hegemony slowly wanes. And so the importance and the critical opportunity of this work will also continue to grow. So uh, what I would say is it's, it's never too late, um, uh, even if the work has, has uh, thus far remained small, um, the importance of it will grow. And I, and I do believe that you'll see more of it uh, alongside um, the, the, the rise of the campus sect, you could say. So here's a question for, um, because more specifically about those of us who reject campism, um, there's, I think, a mistake that we can make, some of us could make, out of frustration with campism. Um, and because we are living in a society where China bashing is on the rise. Um, and that's the mistake where we would lose our focus on the priority of opposing the Canadian ruling class. Um, and over a century ago, the German socialist Karl Liebknecht put it very well. He said that the main enemy is at home. Of course, that does not mean that we only ever criticize Canadian imperialism, for example. Uh, but do you have any thoughts about how we can keep our focus on the main enemies at home while, of course, extending international solidarity to people in struggle against the Chinese state? Yeah, I can definitely see this danger, and especially for the people that um, I guess like predominantly think of uh, uh, international affairs and analysis and solidarity, and they stay within this kind of uh, uh, umbrella without really seeing the linkages. And I completely agree that uh, you could say an overemphasis on foreign affairs is often used to distract from the righteous fury and the organizing potential against Canadian elites that uh, is so obviously important here. Uh, I guess one qualification I, could, I would say, say to this sort of um, this thinking is the potential to read this as, um, and I don't think this is what um, 
uh, the main enemy of Holmes uh, was trying to do, but I, I see it read sometimes as a sort of nationalist myopia, right? That because we live in the ambit of the Canadian state, we ought only, right, to critique Canadian imperialism. Mm -hmm. And this has harmful consequences as it reifies the nation state uh, and its borders and misunderstands how capitalism uh, and capitalist oppression is global, policing is global. And of course, borders themselves are, are brutally violent. Uh, so my my reading of this, and I don't even know if it's a qualification, maybe this is just my uh, uh, interpretation, is uh, to always think local, right? And think local in your politics and then think uh, about solidarity and think translocal. Um, your community obviously should always be the first place, I think, that you start organizing. Uh, but as we know, even in Canada or so-called Canada, many people that we live with, work with, organize with, have transnational or, or migrant roots, right? Uh, there are millions of Chinese uh, Canadians. There are hundreds of thousands of Hong Kong Canadians. And home for them, uh, as it is for me, right, uh, will always be in a multiplicity of places that complicate the border. And so where socialism is strongest, I think, is when people can connect their local struggles, right, to other local struggles in building democratic uh, working class power to see the see the similarities that we really are in it together, even though the localized context of that strike, struggle might work differently. And that also means understanding that the working class here has uh, much more in common with the working class in China than it does with, you know, uh, capitalist elites like Galen Weston or, or Meng Wanzhou, right? So uh, I, I see that as, okay, you know, we, we always have to start locally, think locally, have this progressive politics organized together. And I think what will happen is, is it becomes obvious, especially in a place like Canada, uh, uh, that because there are so many people with this transnational roots, that uh, those, if you're open-minded to those ideas of listening to diaspora activists, um, and migrant activists and, and hearing what they have to say um, uh, and struggling alongside with them that we can make these connections actually a lot more powerful. And uh, the, those migrants, um, I would say, are also an important part of the local struggle against uh, the Canadian elites. And I have actually seen this uh, where you have people who are very critical of um, the Communist Party of China and actually do work in bridging a lot of this activism show up in, in Toronto for encampment support, uh, show up uh, against Toronto police forced evictions of, of people who are, are how, uh, unhoused. And so um, actually the, I, I've seen some very beautiful, I think, uh, examples of, of this praxis uh, in action. And, and I definitely think that should be where our starting point is. Thanks. I want to focus for um, our second last question, I guess, on the fight against anti-Chinese racism, anti-Asian racism in this society and how to engage in that fight without in any way denying the oppressive actions of the Chinese state, for example, the oppression of the Uyghurs, um, and without in any way giving ground to, to China bashing. So with an eye to listeners who are not Chinese Canadians themselves, could you offer some thoughts on that? Yeah, th uh, thanks for this question, David. I think I think this is the one that I feel most comfortable in because uh, I think I've done anti-racism 
work for so long. Um, I would say that anti-racism is also not a practice that ought to be confined to borders, right? Racism is a uh, naturalization of a discourse uh, and a structuring of, of othering peoples that produces, normalizes, and justifies hierarchy and subordination, right? And of course, the most common and powerful manifestation of that uh, contemporarily and over history has been white supremacy, uh, but it's not confined to that. So, um, you know, some some listeners might know of the work of Cedric Robinson uh, in Black Marxism uh, and his concept of, of racial capitalism, which helps us understand how racializing practices within feudal, feudal uh, European society was uh, extended and amplified into mercantilism and then capitalism through uh, European colonialism and, and transatlantic slavery. So uh, further, different contexts, right, can create different uh, racial microclimes. So being anti-racist, no matter what race you are, right, means breaking down uh, and interrogating racial hierarchies everywhere. So um, how, uh, so, so then you can extend this to think about how we understand the systemic oppression of Uyghurs under Han nationalism, right? Uh, it's then it becomes rather easy. Uh, you, you think about the fact that Han peoples were only 5% of the Xinjiang population in 1949 when the CPC annexed the region, but now uh, is nearly 50% due to state policy. Uh, there is a paramilitary corporation, the XPCC or Bingtuan, comprised mostly of majority Han members, which controls and develops vast swaths of Xinjiang creates and controls entire cities uh, while dispossessing Uyghur and other Turkic Muslims from their land. You have racialized policing, profiling, uh, mass incarceration of Turkic Muslims um, that occur simultaneously with uh, forced assimilation campaigns and the creation of a racialized surplus labor. And this is, has been amplified uh, over these this past decade with really the co-optation of, of the US-led war on terror uh, sort of rhetoric, which is, of course, in the same way that the U.S. has done it, um, created uh, an excuse, this zone of rightlessness, uh, a constant zone of emergency that allows the Chinese state to do whatever it wants with um, bodies, particularly Muslim bodies, who are, are marked as terrorists. And, and this has really been the precondition to what we've seen in terms of the massive ramping up of oppression of, of Uyghurs. These are all manifestations, I, I hope if you're following me, of, of brutal systemic racism. And so it's not a coincidence that it was actually in 2008, the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination that forced China to admit to their extrajudicial, extrajudicial re-education camp system. So for anti-racists, <laughs> this is actually really easy. This is a layup. If you are an anti-racist, uh, you work to break down racial hierarchy everywhere, and you definitely do not allow states to justify their own settler colonial or racist uh, policies under the false excuse that critique of these policies equate to racism. So opposing right uh, anti-Chinese racism in the context of white supremacy in Canada and the U.S. is 100% connected to opposing uh, settler colonial and 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 uh, racist policies against 
uh, Uyghurs and other other non-Han indigenous ethnicities um, in in Xinjiang. And I think that uh, connection is is unfortunately uh, I feel not made as as clear as it needs to be. Well, I think you've made it very clear. It's very helpful. The last question uh, is about international solidarity, which is, of course, essential for those of us who are internationalist socialists. So uh, could you offer some thoughts about what people here in the Canadian state can do to support the left in Hong Kong? And although it's much more difficult within mainland China itself. Yeah, yeah. Thanks uh, for that. And um, this is tough. And, and I don't I don't pretend to have the answers to this. And I hope that, you know, collectively we can think about uh, uh, some options and and there's just amazing people on the left who have so much experience and so much practice. Uh, we talked a little bit about the spectrums of options in foreign policy, um, but much more important to that and to, to answer this question is, you know, what non-state, like civil society actors, unions can do uh, to support the, the left uh, in Hong Kong and in mainland China. And, uh, you know, we can cooperate, uh, you know, and, and I, I talk about this in Briarpatch, but we can cooperate and build solidarity with Chinese workers, uh, with nascent labor movements in Hong Kong, uh, ethnic minorities resisting dispossession and cultural eradication, uh, rather than siding with the state and Han nationalism. Um, and a couple of examples of, you know, kind of what is going on, which is, uh, uh, I think, really ought to be a red flag for, for leftists everywhere is in Hong Kong, the, the most prominent and largest uh, trade union, um, the Confederation of Trade Unions, the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions was actually forced to disband uh, because of threat of prosecution um, and, and repression from the national security law in Hong Kong. This was a really, really, really important institution had over 150,000 members and had been doing, in addition to workers' rights uh, in Hong Kong, had been doing a lot of workers' rights organizing and support in mainland China, uh, as, as, as well as uh, anti-colonial work during um, the British colonial era in Hong Kong. So uh, the fact that that um, trade union has been forced to disband. It's been a huge blow. Student unions now are being forced to disband. So in the second most important university, right, the Chinese University of Hong Kong, uh, the student union there, uh, as for similar reasons with respect to the national security law, has been has been forced politically to disband. And and we need uh, you know the left to to speak out, and some some have, um, but. But this is, I think, really white, right in the wheelbarrow of where international solidarity is, is important. Um, and, and, you know, just keep track of what is going on. I think there are always, um, uh, right now, there is, is sort of a massive uh, fight back against the 996 culture uh, in, in China that has proliferated the sort of uh, nine-hour work week um, uh, uh, that for six uh, for six days a week, um, that has really from from, from uh, sorry not not nine hour work week nine a.m. to to tw- uh, nine p.m. so the twelve hour work week uh, six days a week so the nine nine six thing um, has really proliferated in China. But of course, because independent trade unions 
and uh, independent labor organizing is banned and cracked down upon, it is very difficult for this to institutionalize. So um, uh, to the extent that I think uh, international socialists can um, at least follow some of this and offer support and solidarity is, is really, really important. And the final thing I would say is, you know, Canadian leftist positions need to be grounded within affected communities in China and their uh, diasporas with all their complexities so that there is a real stake in the outcome of leftist demands uh, and that those who are most directly affected uh, are centered, listened and supported to. I think this is this is a core principle in any good leftist politics. Right. Um, there, For example, for Uyghurs and Tibetans, there is a diaspora here in, in Canada, and, and I do hope that connections are made more closely to, to understand uh, the, their plight, and especially for, for, for Uyghurs and those in Xinjiang, um, about the control, the forced disappearances of many family members and, and, and what they're do, dealing with there. So... Um, and, and the other thing I think is also important, and you, you know, leftists can also go on the offensive in this way, is call out right-wing forces when they decry uh, in China what they are doing at home. So, so you know, it's right there. Uh, use it. We need the leftist critique. We need it loudly. And so uh, that will really delegitimize, I think, the uh, when we talk about campism, this is the right-wing campism that is going on. So you, uh, we need to hear more, I think, from leftists in, in Canada and, and elsewhere about this hypocrisy um, uh, and, and this, this campus politics that is being forced by the right-wing and why it is completely morally bankrupt, but also politically doesn't make any sense. And so uh, I hope that a better understanding of how uh, China has developed politically, economically, and socially will, will give leftists a little bit more in terms of talking points, in terms of analytical tools to start making those arguments. And, and, and we need those uh, uh, voices to be loud and strong. So, so those are some, I think, ideas. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>